In Chapter 13 of Volume 1 of his History of Arizona, titled Early Indian Troubles, early state historian James H. McClintock relates to his readers the details of the rise of the Great Apache Conflicts as he understood them. Though he's not as thorough or correct as modern scholarship on the subject, there is one interesting tidbit that he does give us, and that later historians still use. As he leads up to one particular incident, McClintock remarks about a letter sent to him by one D. E. Connor, who, quote, asked that history be put straight on this interesting and possibly material point, end quote. Then, for about a page and a half, McClintock quotes directly from Connor's letter, unfolding a tale to contradict the official reports about the death of a certain prisoner being a matter of soldiers firing upon an escaping captive. Because Connor, you see, claimed to have seen the whole incident, and that was not what happened. No, what he had witnessed was not an escape attempt, but nothing less than the last torturous moments and murder of the great Apache war chief, Mongus Coloradas. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 42, The Greatest of Wrongs. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you all had a good holiday season and are ready to start the new year with gusto. I know I'm ready to dive back into telling the story of the 48th state, especially as the action and drama is really starting to ramp up now. So, without further ado, let's get back into it, shall we? It's been a bit, so as a refresher, when we left off last time, Cochise and his allied Apache had been defeated at the Battle of Apache Pass by Union troops. Though it wasn't a huge battle like we would think of today, despite some of the soldiers' claims the death toll was barely in the dozens, it was a bad beat for Cochise. With this loss hanging over his head, and his father-in-law, Mangus Colorados, badly wounded, Cochise and his followers retreated back to Mexico as they had so many times before. Don't worry, though, because you can't keep an angry, vengeful Apache chief like Cochise down for long, but we'll get into that in later episodes. The victory of the Union forces also meant that the road between Tucson and New Mexico was now wide open for Brigadier General James Henry Carlton and his California column. But before we let him head further east, I want to talk a little bit about his troops' impact on Arizona. I ended last week by noting the establishment of Fort Bowie in Apache Pass to help keep a better eye on the Apache and protect folks on the road to Tucson. Another major upshot of this new army presence was the re-establishment of the mail service, which had been terminated just a year beforehand in 1861 when the Butterfield mail line ceased to run. Carlton ordered that a military mail, or a vedette service, be established between Tucson and Los Angeles. To man this new line, he basically sought out jockeys, good riders who were all smaller men so they wouldn't fatigue the horses as easily. These riders also needed a lot of what can only be described as grit, 
as they were often tasked with riding through Apache territory and barren deserts without an escort. Author Andrew E. Masek sums it up by saying that they were reliant on their animals and their own instincts to make it safely through. Now, Carlton did petition the U.S. Postmaster General to reestablish regular mail service through the southern route, but his vedette service would be the only mail across Arizona until after the Civil War had ended. Last episode, we also touched on how heavy-handed Carlton's orders could be, especially when he cracked down on gambling houses, vagrants, and really anyone who rubbed him the wrong way. That certainly was the case for Sylvester Mallory. We talked last time about the lawsuit he would bring against Carlton as well as a congressional hearing, but I also forgot to mention that Mallory in coming years will successfully induce the first Arizona territorial legislature to officially condemn the general's actions. However, for the most part, the Unionists still living in Arizona were glad to have a firm hand on the tiller. Most believe Carlton's actions were necessary to restore law and order to Arizona. And it was because of the soldiers' presence that fair elections continued to take place. In August 1862, we have a record that Francisco S. León was voted in as Commissioner of Streets, Roads, and Bridges, while Francisco Romero was elected as Mayordomo de Asequias, or basically the head of Tucson's water department. All of this was done under the auspices of Carlton as the military governor. And Carlton, always a details man, also turned his attention to the normal bureaucracy that goes into making an orderly society run. To this end, he ordered that maps of Arizona be made, a census taken, and something be done about land claims. As to that last point, this is what I mentioned way back in episode 28, when people were told to please, please, please register their real estate just so there was a tidy record of who actually owned what. Major David Ferguson, left in charge of things in Tucson when Carlton moved on to New Mexico, would appoint William S. Aury, now being name-checked for like something of a third time in our podcast, to survey property and help settle land disputes as much as possible. This was no easy task. You might also remember from episode 28 that clear titles weren't something that the Mexican government had ever really bothered with, so Aury found himself besieged by people asking for a clear title to a piece of land whose ownership was actually disputed. To aid him in his task, Aury would actually write to Governor Pesquera in Sonora to ask for his aid in deciding disputes that stretch back to the Mexican and even Spanish era in Tucson. He also requested all the documentation that had been done when the Mexicans had pulled out in 1856. And just to tie things back around to episode 28 again, this probably included everything Ensign Joaquin Comodaran had documented. Now, I'm sure Aury did his best, but disputed claims are still going to be nebulously floating around out there until the turn of the 20th century, so it really was an impossible task handed to him. Not to get too far ahead of the narrative, because I plan to touch more on this in a coming episode, but having so many soldiers from California stationed in Arizona during the Civil War also meant we see a flurry of descriptions of local flora, fauna, and native tribes. Carlton himself took time out of his busy schedule to visit the blacksmith shop of Ramon Pacheco in order to see the massive Tucson meteorite that had been used in the shop as an anvil since the 1850s. 
For those keeping score at home, I first mentioned this meteorite back in episode 23. According to Masik, Carlton removed the meteorite, which weighed more than a ton, from Pacheco's, despite the proprietor's objections. The meteorite generated great interest in geological circles, and this is the reason it eventually wound up in the Smithsonian, where it remains on display to this very day. Also destined to wind up in the Smithsonian was another Arizona curiosity found by one of the California volunteers. The skull of a two-headed rattlesnake. But meteorites aside, staying in Tucson did not really capture Carlton's interest. He was a high-ranking officer in the Union Army, and as far as he knew, there were still some dirty, rotten, no-good Confederates to fight in New Mexico. So in late July 1862, Carlton placed Major Ferguson in charge of things in Tucson, and then set out with his main force toward the east. By August 7th, he had arrived at the Rio Grande in New Mexico. The rest of his force, some 1,400 men, including civilian contractors, had joined him by August 15th. Though the funniest side to this is that Carlton was kind of disappointed when he discovered that it was mostly all quiet on the Eastern Front. Remember, the Confederates had been in retreat since their defeat at the Battle of Glorieta Pass back in April, so most of the enemy that Carlton was just itching the face in battle were already gone. En route from Tucson, he wrote to Edward R.S. Canby, who had overall command of New Mexico and now had the rank of Brigadier General, and said, quote, The gallantry of the troops under your command has left us nothing to do on the Rio Grande. End quote. In the same letter, he said it would be a sad disappointment if he and his men should have to turn back without engaging any Confederates. To that end, he suggested pushing forward into Texas to really take the fight to the rebels. Canby tried to dissuade him from this, but ultimately acquiesced and told Carlton he had full discretion over his own troop movements. And Carlton would ultimately march into Texas and rattle the saber there a little bit, though he was recalled to Santa Fe by Canby on September 2nd. The reason for this recall was not for any indiscretion on Carlton's part, though he and Canby had quarreled somewhat about how the California volunteers were putting a strain on supplies in New Mexico. Instead, Canby announced that he was being reassigned to the theater in the East, and Carlton was now in charge of the Department of New Mexico. Most of the regular army soldiers in New Mexico were, like Canby, heading east to fight in the main war, but Union intelligence suggested that the rebels were regrouping to make another stab at taking the southwest, so keeping strong garrisons in the area was a must. That meant the men from the California column would stay, as well as volunteer forces raised in New Mexico, all under Carlton, now officially the department commander. It would be an assignment that he would oversee for the next four years. But as I just said, all the Confederates were gone. So how was Carlton going to occupy himself? And the answer there is once again, the Apaches. Once in charge of New Mexico, Carlton wasted no time in tracking down the legendary mountain man and scout, Kit Carson. I name-checked Carson a couple times in previous episodes, but these were always passing references because he lived in New Mexico and seems to always just be on the peripheral of our story. 
In one of those references, I mentioned that he was a legend in his own time, and that's really true. Born in Kentucky in 1809, his family had moved to Missouri a couple years later, and he had originally been apprenticed to a saddle maker, but at the age of 17, he ran away by joining a caravan headed for Santa Fe. It's here that he fell in with the trappers and other mountain men. Carson managed to distinguish himself above that horde, though, mainly due to a widely published account of an expedition he had led that made him a household name. And yet at the same time, he didn't quite fit the mold of the stereotypical mountain man. He was physically short, taciturn, and rather unassuming. Most people did a double-take when they first met him. No less a figure than William Tecumseh Sherman, who was introduced to Carson in 1847 during the Mexican-American War, noted his eagerness to finally be in the presence of this legendary figure, only to say, quote, I cannot express my surprise at beholding a small, stoop-shouldered man with reddish hair, freckled face, soft blue eyes, and nothing to indicate extraordinary courage or daring. End quote. But the reason Carlton was interested in the living legend is that he was a pro-Union man who had done valuable service for the Army since the Mexican-American War. He had guided Kearney across the Southwest as he marched to California during that war, and Carson had even led a company of New Mexican volunteers at the Battle of Valverde in February 1862. Also, he knew Carlton personally, and was therefore ready to answer the call of the new commander of New Mexico. So, in September 1862, he received Special Order 176, which sent Carson, now a colonel in the army, to reopen the abandoned Fort Stanton in southeastern New Mexico. But that would also put Carson deep into the territory of the Mescalero Apache. The Mescaleros were part of that western division of the Apache that I briefly mentioned back in episode 33. And they basically had had the run of their slice of the New Mexican territory since all the white eyes were busy shooting at each other and could not send more than a few expeditions to stop their raiding. But now Carlton wanted to bring this under control and ordered Carson to do so. Also, in action movie parlance, he ordered him to do it with extreme prejudice. Quite simply, Carlton was done dealing with the various tribes, who he thought were constantly making treaties and breaking them at the drop of a hat. So the only logical solution was no more treaties. If the carrot wasn't working, it was time for the stick. That's why the orders that came down to Carson were simple. Kill every Mescalero Apache man, but spare the women and children. Those were to be taken to Fort Stanton until something could be decided to do with them. There was to be no more treaties, no talks, just submission or death. If the Apache were beaten enough, their leaders could ride to Santa Fe and talk with Carlton to sue for peace. But that was it. Now, we should probably talk about this policy for a second. As Cochise biographer Edwin R. Sweeney notes, this policy appears to us today as cruel, inhumane, and downright immoral. And for the record, it is. But this is also one of those times where we have to temper our judgments slightly due to the conditions 
of the era. Because the feeling that extermination was the only way to solve the Amerindian problem was pretty common at this time. In just a few years, the phrase, the only good Indian is a dead Indian, will enter the American lexicon. And you'll find many sources from this period mentioning how in this or that fight, they made many good Indians. Early state historian Thomas Farish says in his work on Arizona that, quote, The feeling prevailed at the time among the people of Arizona that the only way to effect a permanent peace was by the slaughter of every Indian capable of bearing arms, end quote. He also quotes Sylvester Maury as saying the Amerindians, though he probably meant it most about the Apache, were as venomous as rattlesnakes and should be dealt with accordingly. But we also can't forget that things don't break down to something as simple as Americans bad, Apache good. We have seen the Apache in general, and Cochise in particular, do some pretty despicable things over the years. Sweeney also points out that Cochise and Mangas Colorados practiced much of the same policy as Carleton and wanted nothing less than to drive the hated white eyes out of their land. And just to continue to cloud already murky waters, Sweeney also says we can't forget that the Americans considered themselves superior to the natives, more civilized in understanding, which puts a greater amount of the blame on them. Also, he says, Cochise and Mangas Colorados never thought of what they were doing in terms of extermination or genocide, unlike the Americans who were expressly using that language or similar wording when it came to their view on the best way to deal with the Amerindians. If there is a point to be made here, it's that Carlton's orders may have been a step crueler and maybe more explicit than his predecessors, but it still fit with the tenor of the times that he lived in. And not that I want to paint historic figures in such black and white roles, but Carlton at times really does feel like the cold, calculating villain that is brought in partway through the movie to finally crush those plucky rebels. A Grand Admiral Thrawn, if you will. Okay, you may be asking me now, David, why are we talking about this? Carlton, Carson, and everything you are talking about are in New Mexico. This is a podcast about Arizona. Did you get lost? Well, the reason I bring this all up is because in coming episodes, both Carlton's policy and Carson himself will spill over into Arizona and culminate in a particularly harsh campaign against the Navajos. But we'll get into that in coming weeks. Getting back to the matter at hand, Carson's campaign against the Mescalero Apache was brief and effective. He received the orders in September 1862, and by the end of the year was able to report that the campaign had ended. The Mescaleros were, quite frankly, overwhelmed, so they had no choice but to sue for peace. The terms of that peace involved something familiar to everyone who has a passing knowledge of the American policy during this time, moving tribes to a reservation. Specifically, the place chosen was Bosque Redondo, a spot along the Pecos River roughly 160 miles southeast of Santa Fe. Carlton had organized the reservation and established Fort Sumner there in November 1862. And by the spring of 1863, it was home to more than 400 Mescalero Apache. Now that the Mescaleros had been brought to heel, Carlton could now turn his attention and ire 
against the tribe he called the Gila Apache. These were Chiricahua, and Carlton set his sights on taking out no less a figure than the towering Mangus Coloradus himself. The general dismissed any notions of peace with the Badonkahe chief, writing simply, quote, I have no faith in him, end quote. Coloradus had withdrawn somewhat from the active campaigns of Cochise and others after the gunshot wound that he had suffered at the Battle of Apache Pass. Following the operation at gunpoint done in Hanos, the great chief had returned to the Mogollon Mountains of New Mexico and, at least according to state historian Thomas Sheridan, he had wanted to retire to a reservation promised him at Santa Lucia Springs near the upper Gila River in New Mexico. Encroaching American settlement meant that reservation never happened, and so this was impossible. So any hopes for a peaceful end for the great leader, who was now at least 70, were now thoroughly dashed. I should warn you up front that there are like half a dozen accounts of the end of Mangos Coloradas, each overlapping and diverging from others at points. I'll try to keep things to a coherent narrative, but sometimes that is downright impossible. Suffice it to say that in mid-January 1863, Carlton ordered Joseph R. West, who had been at the head of the advanced part of the California Column as it had marched from Fort Newman to Tucson, to take a force to western New Mexico to deal with Coloradas. West told Carlton that he needed to recruit none other than Jack Swilling, the one-time Confederate officer, Arizona Guard member, and Indian fighter. You might remember from episode 39 that Swilling was the lieutenant who escorted Carlton's friend, Captain William McCleave, to Mesilla after the captain had been caught in a rebel sting operation at the mill on the Gila River. Well, it turns out that McCleave and Swilling actually developed something of a good friendship over the course of that trip. So now that the Confederates were on the run out of New Mexico, Swilling was still being used by the Union Army for his scouting and Indian fighting skills. Well, during this time, Swilling was at the mines near Pinos Altos in New Mexico and had fallen in with a party of adventurers led by Joseph R. Walker. And this is where things start to get murky. By one account, Mangas Coloradas actually sought out Swilling to discuss his retirement options. Afterward, the great chief held a council of his fellow Apache where he said he thought he could trust these men, Swilling in particular, and that he was going to turn himself over to them in order to broker a peace. By the same account, many of the other Apache leaders, including the one we now know as Geronimo, objected strenuously to this plan, but Coloradas insisted. Another version has Walker, Swilling, and others being informed by a Mexican boy who had escaped captivity by the Apache that Mongus Coloradas was nearby. Swilling then persuaded Walker that Coloradas could be a handy hostage to have in order to negotiate a peace. Walker decided to look for Coloradas and was aided by the timely arrival of men under the command of West. Here the two versions kind of intersect, both saying that the Americans hid themselves around the now-abandoned Pinos Altos mining camp, some in the old buildings and some in the surrounding chaparral. 
So either Mangus Coloradus came down a path toward the settlement due to a previously negotiated understanding with Swelling, or because he thought Americans were in the area and wanted to make peace. At this point, one of those present records that Swelling gave a loud war whoop and went out to meet with Coloradus. After speaking in their mutual broken Spanish, Swilling then motioned to the Union troops, all who came out of hiding, their guns leveled at the great chief. Now, Coloradus allowed himself to be taken into custody, but he was told that the dozen or so bodyguards with him were not welcome. So Coloradus dismissed them and went with the Americans. His last words to the Apache were, Tell my people to look for me when they see me. Knowing that there were who knows how many Apache about, the Americans quickly beat a retreat to Fort McLean, where West was now stationed. Coloradus and West had a long interview on January 18, 1863, during which time some sources say that the chief proclaimed his innocence and that of his people for any recent murders of Americans. West is supposed to have snarled that Coloradus had, quote, murdered your last white victim, you old scoundrel, end quote. And here things get murky yet again. Supposedly, West also gave two of his men um, special instructions, saying, quote, Men, that old murderer has got away from every soldier command and has left a trail of blood for 500 miles on the old stage line. I want him dead or alive tomorrow morning. Do you understand? I want him dead. End quote. Some accounts have Coloradus being jailed in an old adobe building. The guards there are said to have left the door intentionally open or unlocked. And some versions have it that they heated the bayonets of their guns in a fire and then pressed them to his skin to the point that he tried to escape through the conveniently unlocked door, creating the probable cause to shoot him and write that he was killed while trying to escape. However, this is where the account written to McClintock from D.E. or Daniel Ellis Connor comes in. Connor was a part of the Walker party, so he had a front row seat to what happened. He claimed that for most of the afternoon and evening, Coloradus sort of hung around camp, and that at night he had brought some blankets to be next to a nearby fire. Connor, who was on watch a bit away, claimed that he could see the two men guarding Coloradus doing something to him, but they would always stop when he came to the fire to warm himself. Finally, he retreated just enough so he could still see, and he was able to discover that they were heating their bayonets in the fire and touching the white-hot metal to Coloradus' arms and legs. When the great chief finally had enough, he raised himself up onto his arm, angrily calling out that he was not a child to be played with whereupon the two men promptly fired their rifles into him, then drew their revolvers and did the same. Mongus Coloradus slumped down where he was, dead. The great chief, who had been born while Spain still ruled and had lived through the birth of Mexico, the hard years following independence, the arrival of the Americans, and too many battles to count, was now gone. And no matter the actual events, his death was listed on official reports as him being killed while trying to escape. 
As in all times when there is so much animosity between two groups, Mangus Coloradus' body did not escape some desecration. Even Connor reports that he took some of the trinkets the chief had on him at the time. Another soldier scalped him with a bowie knife or an Arkansas toothpick that he had borrowed. The body was buried in a shallow grave, but a couple days later, the military surgeon removed the head and boiled it so he could remove the skull. And the skull was sent along to a notable phrenologist of the day who was impressed that it was even bigger than famed lawyer and statesman Daniel Webster's. Carlton was elated when the news reached him that Coloradus was dead, boasting in his report that, quote, Doubtless the worst Indian within our boundaries, and one who has been the cause of more murders and torturing and burning at the stakes in this country than altogether, has been killed. End quote. For the Apache, however, this incident only managed to make them even more angry. Not only had their great leader been killed, and in such a dishonorable way, but as historian and author Paul Andrew Hutton writes, to the Apache, a mutilated body must go on like that for eternity. Condemning the towering Mangus Coloradus to that fate was simply inexcusable. Geronimo said it best when he described it as, quote, the greatest of wrongs, end quote. As much as Carlton must have hoped the execution of the great old chief would set an example, it only managed to make Cochise and the other rebellious Apache angrier than ever. However, I want to put that storyline on the back burner for a moment. Because, as you may have noticed, we have now entered 1863. It turns out that's a significant year in Arizona's political history. So join me next week when Congress, after years of punting on the issue and ignoring all previous attempts, finally gets down to the business of officially forming the United States Territory of Arizona. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.